Welcome to Authors Matters, a podcast from the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society. I'm Caroline Sanderson, and I'm a writer and books journalist. In this episode of Authors Matters, we talk to Darren Chetty. Born in Swansea and describing himself as Welsh, Indian, South African, Dutch, Londoner, Darren is a writer, teacher and researcher. He's published academic work on philosophy, education, racism, children's literature and hip-hop culture. He's co-author with Geoffrey Boacci of What is Masculinity? Why Does It Matter? and Other Big Questions. And he's also the co-editor of Welsh, brackets plural, out in 2022. His essay, You Can't Say That, Stories Have to Be About White People, appears in landmark award-winning anthology The Good Immigrant, 21 Writers Reflect on Race in Contemporary Britain. Darren, welcome. Like many other writers, you have a day job as a teacher. Uh, Initially, that was in primary schools, I think, and now at UCL. Tell us about that and the context in which you've taught. So, yeah, I started primary school teaching in 1997 and taught for just over 20 years. Um, By the end of it, I was going slightly part-time because I was studying and starting to teach at uh, firstly at the Institute of Education and now at UCL. But it's it's a part-time thing. Right now I'm finishing my my PhD, so I'm sort of trying to balance making enough money, teaching, keeping my hand in at teaching, and also having the space to, to complete my doctorate because then I can get on with other things. Okay, so that, that balance that so many writers are trying to... To strike. So in in my intro there, I mentioned your essay, You Can't Say That, Stories Have to Be About White People. And it's a really interesting and quite moving uh, essay about your discovery as a teacher that young children of colour and young white children as well, when asked to write stories in class, were writing exclusively about white characters because of a belief that that's what stories are. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to what extent that experience was a driving force for your writing. Yeah, I think I was talking to someone the other day and saying that I think for me, writing in any way was a, a, really came out of a, a sense of a need to write back. I think I was talking to someone whose child had, had experienced reading texts with racist you know, description in them and, and really not being sure whether to continue with the book or whether they just wanted to, you know, just hurl the book into the corner and saying that, you know, that to some extent that was my childhood experience as well. But at the same time, you know, I went on to study uh, English at university that if one was to throw all the racist books out, all the books with some elements of racism in them, you'd kind of not have an awful lot of English literature to read. So it's always that challenge, I think, of, of how to sort of talk back to the stuff that you read. And as I say, there was a sense of really wanting to add my own voice, even, I guess, you know, when I was at university, thinking just writing informally and wanting to critique things. And that sort of developed with with wanting to write then about my teaching experiences. So that what what became the chapter for The Good Immigrant was initially a, a blog post on Media Diversified. And I wrote it because I was invited to write something about education and I had already been thinking about it. So that's that's sort of how that emerged. So adding your experience and adding your voice to the canon, if that's not too a grander word, but it, it is kind of that, isn't it? So I think writing for almost all of us is a vocation uh, poised between the want and the need to do it mm-hmm. and the requirement to earn a living. So is it challenging finding the time to write and also funding it at the same time? 
Uh, yes, <laughs> and I think at the moment it's it's it, the funding bit has gone down, and that you know I'm in the, the very fortunate position of having a partner who's got a stable job and and bringing in you know enough money, and is very patient with me and and knows that writing is important. Uh, for me, and also, you know, I, I, living in London, it was very difficult. But having uh, there was a time uh, before the present government when there was such a thing as a key worker loan that helped with, uh, you know, trying to have a place to live in in London, um, because a lot of teachers at the age of thirty or so end up moving further and further out of the city because they simply can't afford to to stay there. So yeah, it, it's it's piecemeal, uh, and there's all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of privileges that I have that I know many other writers uh, don't have, and that right now it seems to me that unless you're very prolific or very maybe very talented, but also very lucky, to be able to sort of live just on your writing seems you know quite a quite a dream for yeah, for, a dream. for many good writers not just you know aspiring writers well i mean i think even if you end up being successful it takes a long time to build up the, mm-hmm. the body of work and the the momentum that that you need to be able to give up other things doesn't it although and some writers often say that if they have a day job it the two things sort of fuel each other i guess so i suppose your example of somebody where your day job very much has has fed into your writing yeah, definitely. Everything I do, I think, is is kind of linked with education in some way uh, and comes out of practice. And I guess I'm partly writing because being invited to talk about my writing just seems a very natural uh, extension to me. It's not. I know some writers are, are quite sort of insular characters who like being at their desk and, and going out in public is, is a bit of a, an effort. Whereas because I guess I had the sort of teaching background, the idea of writing and presenting is is, is something I'm fairly comfortable with. Yes. Now, AOCS is um, an active promoter of copyright and a promoter of copyright to young people and produces resources for both primary and secondary school teachers and their pupils. So I'm interested, given your work encouraging children to write stories featuring characters like themselves, whether you also recognise the importance of showing that they too can be creators who own those stories. Oh, that's a good question. Mm. <laughs> and and it's one of those where I probably didn't do that enough. I, I certainly wanted them to feel that they could be creators of stories and that their lives were rich and valuable source material for stories. But I guess when I was full-time teaching, I still had a bit of a sense of them being potential writers. Mm. So we did. I remember putting together like uh, literary magazines for, you know, collating their work and putting it out, but certainly not attending to matters of of copyright in, in any way or, or sort of formally publishing their work. Oh, it's interesting, though. That, that's, I, I love the sound of that, doing anthologies. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing feeling for them, I'm sure, to see their work. Yeah, definitely, you know, yeah. Made like a book, as it were. So the latest annual report from the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education found that 15% of children's books published in the UK in 2020 feature a minority ethnic character and that's a 5% increase on the previous year and Mm -hmm. much better than the 4% recorded in the first survey in 2017. But the CEO of um, the CLPE said that that we're not yet at the point where children of colour have the same experience as their white peers. I wondered what you thought about that and what else besides the making sure that there are children see themselves the children of all backgrounds see themselves in in books that's clearly of huge importance but what else is important for publishers to think about 
Oh, my gosh. This is such a big question and one that occupies so much of my time. Well, go for it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, full disclosure, I'm, I'm on the steering group for the CLP, Reflecting Realities Report. Yeah, I think the very act of, of CLP counting these books has positively impacted the, the, the publishing industry. What can publishers do? Well, you know, there, there are ongoing debates right now about particular books and particular uh, descriptions of, of people of colour. And to my mind, one of the biggest problems uh, that publishing has <laughs> for my, you know, sort of mostly outsider but slightly insider perspective is is just who's editing the work. Mm. So a lot of these debates that we're seeing in, in the mainstream media about they're, they're trying to stop white writers from writing characters of colour, I think the problem is that a lot of publishing houses just don't have anyone with the skills required to edit that work. Mm. So for, for white writers, they're going to have to then write their work and have people who aren't equipped to, to do any of the editing. So I've got a friend with a, with a book coming out and I, I was approached by the publisher to, to offer a, a additional editorial support on that because there wasn't someone in-house who could do that. And I think that is often the problem. So until publishers are really sort of working on, on building more inclusive uh, teams in-house, I think that that's going to be a, a real problem for for how writers proceed, adult writers, children's writers. And I know that a lot of those sort of junior jobs in publishing, they, they don't pay well. They're sort of people who are literature graduates who might have to have all kinds of additional financial support. And, and they're typically in London, of course, which you were yeah. talking about already. Or yeah. somehow have the means to live in London when they're not really in, in a salary that would you know, yeah. justify it. So the class is, is a big part of this, the, the economics of, of how this, this whole sort of publishing industry is sustained. And, and I guess there's part of me that thinks the sort of work I do, which maybe sometimes some people feel is a thorn in the side of the publishing industry, sort of writing about children's literature, but actually is, again, I think, helping publishers with, with thinking through some of these issues because there's a real nervousness about actually thinking through the issues. It, there's, you know, I, I hear what writers are being told and, and there's this fear of, of how to do things, but the fear really comes down to the lack of knowledge yeah. and the lack of people with that knowledge in the publishing houses. And I think that's what's required. Yeah, it's very urgent that we diversify the workforce, isn't it? At the coalface, I suppose. But in terms of writers, if you're a young writer of colour and, and sees still these barriers, you know, in terms of your economic position, um, whatever it might be, is there anything that you'd say to to writers who are uh, are you know burning to write something um, from their perspective, but feel that there's perhaps not a place for them in in con you know contemporary publishing as it stands? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd say go for it, uh, but I'd say go for it with your eyes open. You know, uh, when I was meeting with agents, um, you know, a lot of them were very honest and saying, look, if if your intention is to write children's books with with black and brown kids on the cover. It's going to be a harder sell, you know, for me as an agent. That's how the industry is. So that's not to say there aren't more books coming through. There are certain publishers, I think, are, are kind of trying to just import successes from America rather than invest in, in writing talent in this country. I think that's a 
probably economically it's an easier win for them, but it doesn't really help uh, black and brown writers in this country who no. want to get on. I think just building your, a community of writers is so important. People who can not only give you sort of moral support, but can give you you know, technical support on writing, peer reviewing work, and then just the sort of know-how of, you know, who might be useful to talk to and all that sort of insider knowledge that probably is shared in WhatsApp chats and tw Twitter DMs rather than publicly. Yeah. But that once you've written a little bit and, and built those networks, I think that stuff is really important. I think it's very rare that a writer just sort of explodes on the scene who hasn't already been involved in writing groups, yeah. has been networking so I think doing that sort of work will, will help. But it, it's still difficult, I think. People do sometimes, on the outside, they have that impression, don't they, that writers just explode on their scene. They don't see all the work that goes into leading up to that. Um, yeah, and I think publishers like that as well because it sounds really exciting. Look, something sparkly and new, not someone who's been... You know, someone we've discovered, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And I think there, some, there, there do seem to be more good mentoring schemes now. I mean, not, not nearly enough, but some good mentoring schemes around, I think, for marginalised writers. And I think ALCS is involved in supporting some of those as well. I feel like we'd be getting somewhere when these things aren't an inevitable topic of conversation <laughs> every Absolutely. time that I'm interviewing yeah. a writer of, of, of colour. Although, of course, you do have an expertise that I really wanted to um, sure. to explore. But but what are your other preoccupations as a writer? <laughs> what else do you like to write so, about? I think you listed them at the start. I, I've, I'm, I'm interested in children's literature and I always have been. Um, and that's typically ended up looking at issues around what's broadly called diversity. Hip-hop is another big interest and in fact quite a few years ago now I set up a, the hip-hop education seminar series which was basically because I was doing my PhD and finding that often it was uh, I felt like I was in a combat zone and I wanted to be around more nourishing spaces shall we say. Uh, so found other people with an in, interest in both education and hip-hop, whether they were hip-hop artists doing education stuff or educators who were into hip-hop, youth workers, scholars, sometimes young people. And it's through that that I, I met people like Carl Nova, who I know you've had on your podcast, uh, Jeffrey Boache, who was really you know a star of those seminars, who has now gone on to be a writer, uh, and, and a number of other people who, who've written. So I think it was a for me it was a really important space to sort of try out ideas, get feedback. But I think it was for other people as well. Mm. That's spoken word. I mean, I know it through the work of quite a few poets who mm -hmm. who cross over into that space, but it's such an exciting and vibrant sort of part of how that crosses into writing and poetry. Yeah, I think I think the sort of spoken word scene, which I've been part of in terms of attending but not participating. My spoken word days was at the late 80s, so I didn't really uh, keep that up. But but certainly there were people who would start with open mic nights, then get booked, and then and then you know people like uh, Ray Antrobus, yes. who are now award winning poets. Yes. But you know we're, we're often just you know doing twenty minute spots uh, at local uh, spoken word nights with thirty people in a room. You know yeah. not that long ago. He's a tremendous yeah. poet. Yeah, I absolutely, love, I love his work. So, what in an ideal world where money was no object, what would your writing life look like? Gosh, I don't know if I. Uh, I know. Um, I, I ha had an offer to, to write a, a children's literature book, so I wanted to write, to write one. And I'm fully prepared for, you know, people being like, well, he's spent years sort of criticising other, <laughs> other works of children's literature. Let's see what he can create. 
Um, but I want to do that as, a, as an experiment. And I'm, I've, I've got work on a sort of uh, an historical memoir piece that sort of looks at me, but then sort of beyond that into my sort of family history. Um, and the, the, the column I write with Professor Karen Sands O'Connor for Books for Keeps, uh, Beyond the Secret Garden, we're hoping to sort of develop that into a book, which I think is an extension of, of the Good Immigrant chapter. So uh, tell us about the column. So what does it cover? So it looks at uh, racially minoritised people in British children's literature. And it looks at that. Karen has written two books on this and is probably one of the sort of world authorities on this. So she has a really in-depth knowledge of the history uh, and it means going right back to those really quite horrendous racist caricatures, but then sort of mapping the legacy of that and how, you know, if you go into uh, one of the popular high street bookshops, then in the children's section, there will be the classics table. Mm. And if you actually look closely, probably about a third of those books will have fairly straightforwardly racist depictions. But they're also classic literature that, you know, you will buy a new version of maybe with a nice cover and new illustrations and pass on to the next generation. sort of gifty, yes. So what do we do with that inheritance and that legacy? And as I say, I don't think chucking them all in the corner is practical or even, you know, a a sensible idea. But nor is sort of attacking anyone who points out their faults. So I think there's lots of work to be done on that, I think. And I think understanding that children's literature it's, it's always demeaned isn't it it's always seen as like you know there's literature and then there's children's literature and it's it's small and, and and twee but in actual fact a lot of our sort of big myths around nation and and around race emerge out of children's literature it's not just that it reflects the attitudes of society it's, it's historically it's had a big role in shaping those attitudes so i'd hope that we can take children's literature seriously And that's what we've been doing in the column. We'd like to do in the book. We're still trying to find a publisher who believes in that. It's been interesting because so many people liked my chapter in The Good Immigrant, but don't quite think a whole book about that sort of stuff is such a good idea. Um, So, yeah, hopefully we'll find someone and we can can develop that. Well, it sounds like a terrific idea to me. And I I think it's it's about lots of conversations, isn't it? Lots of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Proper conversations. not social media conversations, one might say. No, and that's why even the column it feels useful, but to have a book, to have the space to actually unpack these ideas. And I guess, as I say, Karen's work is primarily a historian of children's literature. My work comes more, more from a philosophical angle. So I think having that space to think around, you know, this this idea of can, can a white writer write a, a black character, for instance, and the, there's the politics of who gets to write books and who gets, you know, paid for writing books. But there's also questions about uh, epistemological questions about can we write, you know, can we know enough to write such such characters? And I think if we say an absolute no, then that has repercussions for literature. It also has repercussions for dialogue, for the possibility of getting to know and understanding people mm. that we, we could do with thinking through. And, and, it, uh, and I think too many people either want to yes, go ahead or no, don't ever response rather than to think through the the intricacies of of those questions there's a universality about great literature isn't there where we get to a point where it speaks to the whole of humanity you know in 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 the best writing i suppose maybe that sounds a little idealistic but um you know it's it's certainly the aspiration and and i think there are moments of it but even even someone like shakespeare 
you know, you can you can see yes. elements of racist traps yes. cropping in. So, so yeah, yeah. It's just been. A but these these things are complex. They need they, yeah, they need absolutely. good conversations, don't they? Well, it's been one for having conversation with you. So thank you so much for joining us on Authors Matters, Darren. Thank you. We aim to reflect the views of a wide variety of authors on our podcast, but their views are, of course, their own. Check out more episodes of Authors Matters wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and please join us next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.